Hello, FC Dallas Curious fans. This is Buzz Carrick. Uh, welcome to Third Degree, the podcast. This is a bonus episode 62 that we weren't expecting to have. Uh, last week's uh, episode with our good friend Kevin Lindstrom, when we were discussing the history of FC Dallas from 2010 to 2014, ended up being a near hour and 50 minutes of content, which I just felt like was too much to ask for anybody to sit through in one listening. Not, to, not that I don't think it was good content, because I do. So I decided to divide it into half and give you two pieces. And last week was part one, which encompassed the years 2010 to 2011. And now we're going to start here in the middle of what was essentially one big longer podcast, but I'm now dividing into two pieces, and this is going to be the years 2012 through 2014. If you enjoyed last week's podcast and this week's podcast, perhaps you could consider supporting us at patreon.com slash third degree. This is an ad-free podcast, and we'd like to keep it that way. We hope you'd like to support us. Overall, this is the fourth section of our history, and this is part two of that segment, years 2012 to 2014 with Kevin Lindstrom. We hope you enjoy. Here we go. So for 2012, uh, not surprisingly, between the busted uh, 2011 draft and between the busted Dax McCarty expansion draft and everything else that happens in terms of moves that season, it's no surprise that Barry Gorman gets let go. Uh, and Fernando Clavijo is brought in as his replacement. Now, at the time, uh, I, in particular, was a little concerned based on Clavijo's track record as an MLS coach. I don't know how you felt about him coming in as a technical director. I'm torn. Um, as we found out later, there were issues with traffic, which is where he was coming from. There's always issues with traffic. Um, but at the same time, he certainly had connections. And whether it was his time with Haiti or his time with Colorado or his time as a player, you know, the, the technical director, general manager, whatever that position is, their job is to find things other people don't. Um, my concern was he was just going to bring in players that he knew and had contacts with rather than whether they were a good fit or not. Um, but then again, um, you know, he also did have enough contacts that some of those players were going to be good. And I think it played out that way. He brought in some players that really made a difference. He also brought in some players that really didn't. Um, yeah, there were, there's a couple solid moves this winter. Scott Seeley is not a horrible breed. Nope. Hernan Petrus is solid. Carlos Rodriguez is solid. None of those are spectacular. Solid. The big move for 2012, uh, and this is a big move, is the signing of Blas Perez, which is yes, sir. who is the most pure classic nine high striker we've ever had. Pure target center forward. And hands down, one of the most competitive players to have ever played for the team. He was never going to leave an inch to anybody if he could help it. Yeah, very physical, very commanding of attention, which is a big part of being a nine is to draw the center back attention, demand the focus Mm -hmm. of the defense. He had all the tools to be a prototype nine. Um, By the time the MLS draft rolls around, FC Dallas only has one pick left. It's the 11th pick overall, and they use yeah, that. But they made pick. it count. Yeah, they use that pick on Matt Hedges, and they throw right him right into the fire, and he starts 23 games. So with one pick, and you get Matt Hedges, that's a good draft. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, 
by that point in time, really, you only had one, um, frankly, even a half round of depth. So, you know, you yeah. had to be top half and you had to make it count. And it probably needed to be a center back or a defensive midfielder. Um, 11th because, overall for him, too. And you're, you're talking about a guy yeah. that a decade later is going to be the number one player in, in this club's history in terms of minutes and starts and, and games and, and everything. you Everything you could ever possibly want, one of the best draft picks in history, no question. Absolutely. Yep. All right. There's some other young quality players around this season. Fabio Castillo is starting to emerge. Breck Shea is the club's only all-star in 2012. Jackson's having a pretty solid season. Uh, But unfortunately, one of the reasons Hedges played so many games as a rookie is the defense starts to fall apart. Uh, They went Mm -hmm. from 2010, the best defense in club history. Now it's two seasons later. And Ugo Iamalu, his career ends 10 games into the season with concussion. George John, uh, the the injuries are just starting to catch up with him and pile up. Nothing specific, at least like in terms of a a specific event where like he was out after that. But he only plays 19 games, starts 19 games. And Hedges as a rookie plays 23. And Hernan Petrus, who's a young player too, ends up starting 24. So... Really, the the signs are showing that the defense is in trouble in 2012. Now, his big problem ends up being in his knee, but yeah. it, it was just and that's what I mean by with George. It wasn't like it was one con, like one moment like Ugo with the concussion. It was right. just a bunch of stuff with George that was starting to pile up, and his minutes were starting to become limited. Yep, absolutely. And you know, it, I hated it for him as a person because I, I again worked for the team. I did get a chance to do events with him, that kind of stuff. One of the nicest guys out there. I remember there was one time we were doing an event. I can't remember if it was for the adult co-ed or adult women's league. I think I can't remember, but you would think in a scenario like that, um, a professional player, you know, might not kind of get stuck in. It's a lot easier to, to get kids excited about playing soccer. Um, the dynamics a little bit different with adults, but man, he rolled with it and he made sure that that team, those players had a really good time. Um, and, and no so, question, he's a great guy. And yeah. but you, 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 the, the fact that they drafted Hedges before this shows that they were already worried about his longevity. Uh, oh, know, they didn't foresee Ugo's concussion problem, obviously. But, you know, over, with those two guys and this way the season was going, thank goodness they drafted Matt Hedges. Right. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think your challenge is Ugo was long in the tooth. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily the best phrase. But, I mean, at that point, Ugo, a lot of a lot of miles on his on his game. Um, and yeah, maybe they had an idea that, that George was maybe similar to Heath Pierce in terms of erring on the side of trying to take care of himself as opposed to fighting through injuries. Um, I, don't, I don't think so with John. I mean, I think it was just the piled up, like how often he was getting hurt. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, because although at the same time, 27 or 28, even though he played a lot, obviously. Right. Right. Yeah. But I mean, uh, Ugo's minutes are. I mean, he was battling players like Connor Casey yeah. almost every game. And that was um, a lot of beatings. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I mean, he give he gave as good as he got um, and he won most of his battles. Um, but that does, you know, wear on you. Right. And then when you throw in the concussions, I mean, that, that was one thing that if I really wish MLS would have gotten ahead of a lot sooner, um, you know, concussion protocol. Yeah. Yeah, concussion protocol, and I mean, because that was that had an issue with Zach, um, you know. Obviously, Dave Wagenfuhrer. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple people, but I'm sure there were more. Yeah, so 
Well, aside from the amount of goals they're giving up, uh, 2012 is also not a good Open Cup year run. In fact, this Mm -hmm. is one of the worst Open Cup upsets. We've talked about Shells not caring about the Open Cup. Mm -hmm. This is one of the worst Open Cup histories in club history when they are upset in the first round by the Charlotte Eagles. Before you ask who the Charlotte Eagles are, that's a PDL team, which is the fourth division. That's basically semi-pro college players. Now, uh, Zach Lloyd and George John both left during the first half with injuries, and Jackson got red-carded early. Um, but still, you, when you lose 2-0 on, to a Charlotte Eagles PDL side, that, that is not a good Open Cup. Again, Shellis, I just don't think I ever cared about the Open Cup. Yeah, I mean, I remember that game being Shellis putting kind of a mix of, of kids and veterans, um, and then all of a sudden he had two veterans out. Um, and then he had Jackson just go absolutely crazy. Now I'm trying to remember, was that red card to Jackson earlier or late? I, I want to say it was later. I, I felt like it was early, but I don't actually have the minute mark. Maybe you're right. Maybe it was late in the game. Uh, either way, you know, you, you don't need to be getting that, a red card against the PDL team. And, and no, 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 no. Especially well, when you've already and lost I mean, Lloyd and John. Yeah. And I mean, the, the incident itself was crazy because if I remember correctly, we were already down to nothing. We had already, you know, it was it was very much a frustration foul. Um, and it was frankly similar to what happened between Hartman and, and Henri in that there was a, a, an issue with the goalkeeper. I think the goalkeeper was picking the ball up out of live play and Jackson basically ran him over. Um, and frankly, you got to give credit to the referee crew for getting in there and keeping it from becoming a brawl. Because if I remember correctly, it was one of those things where if I was a player, and I'm not a fighter, right? And I'm not a very good player at all. Um, but I would have been out there because it was just totally yeah. off the, the Your memory is amazing. I looked it up. It's a 78th minute challenge on keeper Clinton Irwin. So ah. well, look at you with your with your uh, steel trap for a mine there, Kev. Well, it's so just not to go too far down this road, but remember, I was stupid. In 1994, <laughs> I did not go to a single World Cup game. Oh, that is How stupid. How crazy is that? Yeah. I had kind of gotten away from the game. I went to three. <laughs> yeah, I had gotten away from, I mean, understand, I was playing when I was young. I ended up, I watched Fort Lauderdale Striker games when I was a kid. Um, you know, so I was really into it. And then between the NASL dying and us moving to Austin, as opposed to being in Florida and California, which is where we had been beforehand. Um, I just kind of drifted away from it. Then I go to a and I'm in love with sports as a whole, as Aggies are. Um, I'm in journalism, so I'm writing about it. It was phenomenal. Um, and then I had gotten an internship with the Temple Daily Telegram. I'm in the sports room talking with the guys about, yeah, this is the World Cup and this is the U.S. versus Brazil and it would be a really big game to win, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it wasn't until I went home to visit a girlfriend at a and uh, and she had something going on and I was like, okay, so I need to find something to do. And there were some guys playing soccer and I got back out it and it was just, it was like somebody hit me over the head with a baseball bat. What have you been doing with your life? This is what you love, right? So right after that, you've got MLS comes back. I'm in law school and then being a lawyer, this has been my life. Like when I'm not working, this was the thing that I did to keep myself sane. So you know, frankly, I'm really grateful to the sport and to the team, the players, the coaches, uh, the staff, anybody who's helped make this a living, breathing thing. 
um, it's it's really important to me. So I really appreciate it. So if that's a long explanation as to why I remember why Jackson got a red card, I didn't remember the 78th minute thing, but I remember the foul. I remember that it was late and it was frustration. Um, and frankly, this was one of the things that stuck out to me as a trend going forward, that this team got a lot of red cards. Jackson was one of them. Jair Benitez was one of them. Fabian. Um, some of them were random. Eventually, it was people like Javon Watson. Um, but I remember thinking that there was a lack of composure from some players. And unfortunately, I mean, I love his competitiveness, but I think part of it was Blas Perez. He brings a level of confrontation that he could handle 99% of the time because he was a professional. I mean, he was a masterful player for Panama. He knew where that line was and he knew how to push it just to the edge. There were other players on the team that maybe didn't know how to handle that. And there was nobody strong enough. Um, there wasn't a Daniel Hernandez type personality. Um, we're going to come back to that. Yeah. That could basically say, Hey, that's not cool. You can't do that. So all right, the, on. the only bright side of 2012 is uh, the David Ferreira comes back um, for a mm -hmm. late season run. He's never mm -hmm. quite, the MVP level again, but he does notch two goals and nine assists in just 16 games over the back half of the season. Um, but when he comes back, their record is already three, nine and five. So the season is yeah. pretty much over. They, they yeah. do, they do finish roughly just a little above 500 at six, four and seven, but uh, he wasn't enough to turn the season around by himself. No, but I remember, um, I remember that late push was pretty exciting. Um, and there was one game that I think I remember, I don't remember if I've got it exactly right, but we had signed Julian de Guzman. The team was feeling like they had gotten into it. I, I can't remember if Julian was a trade or whatever, but there was a game. I want to say it was against Toronto and he scored a cracker of a goal in stoppage time. And I want to say it was one of the best calls of Mark Folliwell's career. It just went viral. And I remember thinking, wow, maybe they can do it. It was one of those where the mathematical elimination was like hanging on by a fingernail. Um, but that was one of the games that really stuck out to me that year. Um, as well, a you, you can tell that they knew that defense was a problem because of De Guzman coming in, as you mentioned. They also brought in James Marceline for only yep. six games. But honestly, Hartman is starting to slow. Daniel yeah. Hernandez is starting to slow. Mm -hmm. and really, I think, Kevin, looking back, that we have to say that 2012 is basically the end of a cycle as much as anything. The, the peak in 2010 is now almost at the bottom. And it's just, it, it's almost time for a rebuild. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we found out pretty soon that that was true. Yeah. Now, if you're looking for a signature win on that season, it's actually in July when David Ferreira returns uh, and they, they proceeded mm -hmm. to put a 5-0 stomping on the Portland Timbers, which was marked by uh, Ruben Luna netting two career goals in that game. So there's a homegrown player. There's a, there's a little bit of a, a water moment there when they, when David comes back and they all get really excited. Yeah, it was, it was, it, there were definitely were some good moments that season. Um, I, I remember being super excited that for Ruben being involved in the team and, um, you know, watching players like Brian Leva try to find his way and that kind of stuff. Um, and, well, you know, to say the least, Kevin, back was great. 
to say the least, Kevin, the season is going in the wrong direction. The club's going in the wrong direction. And they dropped to sixth in the West with just 39 mm-hmm. points. That's a big fall off from 52 the season before. And they mm-hmm. failed to make the playoffs for the fifth time in club history. Now, yeah. the most bizarre thing at the end of the season happens following the season. And that's when Daniel Hernandez retires to become oh a gosh, full, yes. he, he was already an assistant coach player. So he retires and they name him a full-time assistant coach. And three weeks later, they fire him and he ends up suing the team for wrongful termination. And it's a gigantic, complicated mess. And I actually found some articles that talked about the, the court case and it involves sportsmen, sport sponsorships and sportswear and promises of contracts. And he said, she said, and I did, and I didn't. And it's a giant soap opera. And it's one of the craziest things yeah. I've ever seen because he doesn't yeah. sue Shellis. He sues the team and he is a lifelong Shellis lover. And yet right. it couldn't have gone south faster at the end yeah. of the season when he retired. Yeah, that was one of the, uh, I mean, I would put that up with the Henri kick. That is just bizarre moment um that just doesn't it's like really is this how we're gonna act is this how we're handling things um but you know at the end of the day um there's a lot of things about the business of soccer that frankly needs to improve and unfortunately i think the team and danielle got sideways in one of those moments now in hindsight uh, we have said that 2012 really should have been the end of the cycle. 2013 should have been a rebuild, but instead Shellis kind of goes for a refresh uh, and we'll right. break some of that down here. They draft Walter Walker Zimmerman and Ryan Holling said, neither of them has much of an impact in 2013, but both are solid picks. They signed Michelle to be a left back. If you remember, although they still have. Yeah. The oh yeah. 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 And he ends up playing a lot in the midfield because they signed Peter Lucine to replace Daniel Hernandez and Peter proceeds to tear his ACL in the preseason. Yeah. So yeah, because and- of the consequences of that injury are large because now Michelle has to play a lot in the midfield. Kellen Acosta is a homegrown and he starts to get some serious playing time because they're shorthanded in the midfield. They bring in Raul Fernandez as a goalkeeper because they let Hartman go because he's starting to slow down a little bit. bit. They sign a Brazilian striker named Pipico or Pipco <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. And they, yeah. they didn't even get out of spring training. They cut his ass no. six yeah. weeks later. Uh, yeah. They do bring in Javon Watson, who's a solid piece, a defensive piece. And Eric Hassley, who's Eric Hassley's okay. Uh, but the other crazy thing that happens is they they finally choose to sell Breck Shea because Castillo is looking pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, but the two most interesting pickups of the whole offseason, it was a weird offseason. The two biggest pickups really are, was. number one, uh, Ramon Nunez comes back, and number two, Kenny Cooper comes back. So it's two guys you can never go home again, right? Two guys right. that actually prove that to be true because while we were excited to see them, neither one Didn't of those guys out. really worked out did they no no it was it was that was very much a uh you're trying to lean one way you're trying to lean the other and you know the mr miyagi squished just like grape because you got stuck in the middle <laughs> uh, no no move really worked the way you wanted it to yeah well let's be fair uh you know this season doesn't work out when you look at it on paper though i think i think at the time i felt it was pretty optimistic. I felt pretty optimistic because it, let's, let's lay it out for you. Benitez, George, John, Matt Hedges, 
Javon Watson is solid. Zach Lloyd is looking really good, right? Mm -hmm. The boss Perez, Kenny Cooper pairing should be really nice, right? They end up scoring. In theory. Yeah, in theory. They end up scoring 16 goals, which is not bad between them. And Hasley's not horrible as a a late game sub, right? You've got Fabian Castillo's around. You got David Ferrer around. Uh, Jackson's still around. Michelle comes in, who seems okay. We loved Ramon when he was here before. Andrew Jacobson had been okay. And honestly, on paper, they start the season hot. They're, they start mm-hmm. eight, two, and three, right? Yeah. Everything is going gangbusters, is it not, out of the gate? Yeah, there's a lot of excitement. It seems like every every move is leaning the right way. Um, and unfortunately, it just can't last. It goes to hell, doesn't it? That's a good way to put it. <laughs> it goes to hell. Uh, and they finished the season, and I can't believe this. They finished the season three, ten, and eight. Between yeah. June to October, three wins. And that includes, Kevin, a 13-game uh, winless streak and a stunning 52 goals against, which is the third worst in franchise history. Now, I looked for a moment for like a trigger, and I cannot figure out like an inciting incident. It's it's like this team drove off a cliff, and yet there's nothing specific that I can find so what happened, my man? I, I have a theory, but I want to hear your hear, hear, hear your theory first. Well, so I think one of it is it was very much, um, I don't know if I'd call it Island of Misfit Toys, but you, you mentioned Ramon, you met, mentioned Kenny, you mentioned Michelle, who's supposed to be a left back and now is a midfielder. And what, Yeah, an eight. <laughs> what? I mean, he literally is like the inverse of Daniel Fernando, uh, Pinado, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, where you bring him in thinking he's going to be a defensive midfielder. And it's like, well, no, he kind of more plays defense in the midfield. Yeah. Can. It, <laughs> no, this is Michelle's like, we can't put him anywhere else because he can't do the job. But man, he's got a magical left foot that can open a can, you know, from 100 yards. Might be the best free kick taker we've ever seen. And I don't know. Jason Christ is up there too. Jason Christ and Ronnie O'Brien are in that conversation. Yep, yep. Um, but yeah, you've got, you've, Michelle, I think, is the, your 1A of that group. Um, All right, so here's know. here's my theory, Kevin, on, on 2013 okay. and what went south. You've lost Daniel Hernandez, right? Yes. Your defense, yes. we've already mentioned, is pretty banged up, okay? But specifically, yes. there's no dominant six and you and I, and uh, and we talk about this podcast all the time, the importance and the value of a six. Now you've lost your six on the field, but more importantly, you've lost your Lieutenant in the locker room, your player coach, your guy that would kick you in the tail, your guy that kept Mm -hmm. everybody in line for Shellis. So, so there's a massive, massive leadership void. There's no one defining the coach's vision. There's no one distilling the coach's vision for the players and keeping everybody in tune. And with a coach like Shellis, who's a love hate coach, that's a problem. And for me, this is what happens this season. And, and I think when you just get as a club without any player leadership that you wear out, Shellis wears out a locker room in a hurry. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I would say you can, identify the teams in major league soccer that are going to be successful by their defensive midfielders, whether it's Kyle Beckerman or some of the other players, it literally is the most important position on the field because if you have the right defensive midfield, you can kind of mix and match on your defenders behind them. Yeah. Um, As a matter of fact, you know, the place where this solidified for me was 2003 for the Dallas burn because 
I, I love Chad Deering as a person. He is a great guy. He love he's he's a good soccer player, right? But when you needed someone to stand in front of that defense and make sure that the kids behind him wasn't going to get crushed. And granted, you know, you also expected Steve Morrow to be kind of leading the defense back there too. So, you know, it's not all on Chad. Part of it was just the injury to Steve, but um, weirdly, Kevin, I remember a 2002 and I remember a 2004. I don't, I don't remember a 2003. Was that, <laughs> was, that was that a year? Oh, it was a, it was a black <laughs> hole that I'd love to forget. Yeah, but at the same yeah. time, you know, one of the things I learned early on, um, you know, in you know 97 as part of that is your valleys are also defined by your peaks and vice versa. Um, so I'm never going to try to forget a negative moment. It's one of those things where remember this so that when you have 2016, yeah, you can go, yes, this was worth it. Well, um, by, by July of 2013, Hyman's starting yeah. to get a little desperate uh, and they yeah. make a couple of moves that don't really work out. One of them was the Brazilian Eck, who is, by the way, a holding midfielder, which just shows you that they knew what their problem was. Right. Um, and and bizarrely, in the middle of 2013, they bring in the guy that is essentially David Ferreira's replacement midseason. Yep. And that's yep. Mauro Diaz, who yep. comes in and only plays uh, 10 games and five starts over the, the back half of the season. But he does have three goals and two assists, so certainly there's some intrigue. Uh, and you may not remember this, Kevin, the, Morrow came in coming off of an injury. So there was some question oh, yeah. about how quickly he'd be available or even if he would recover at all. I, I, I remember them thinking they weren't a hundred percent sure he was ever going to get completely better, but it was a weird signing mid season when David was still around. Well, I remember in that season knowing, remembering that when it was clear, Danielle wasn't going to be who he used to be. And that David was kind of losing his edge. That's right. Yeah. Um, I I remember seeing those two things and being worried. And I remember when they brought in Morrow. I do remember that. I do remember that he was coming off an injury. And I also remember when they brought him into games, it was almost a cup coffee type thing where it's sort of like, hey, get used to playing in this league. Exactly. Play, right? Yeah. Wasn't, hey, we're going to put responsibilities on you. It was just get used to being on the field in this league and see the speed and see the way the players play. Um, yeah, and actually, just real quick to go back to it, um, I think Shellis' uh, time in FC Dallas is defined by two clear situations. When he had Hernandez and when he didn't. Yeah. Before Danielle got there, there was zero accountability. Yep. And, you know, you had him putting all this reliance on people like Bruno Guarda. I mean, I feel for that guy because that was talk about an unfair position. Um, but the talent was there, right? Yeah. Um, well, and then Daniel came in. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, you can you can follow that trend up, Kevin, through the history of this club when yeah. Colin Clark went out and got Simo to be his guy, right? Yeah. Shells goes oh, yeah. out and gets Daniel. Oscar goes out and gets Carlos Grezzo. Yes. Uh, uh, arguably, Lucci just went out and got Tiago Santos. You know, yeah. coaches go out and get, I got to go get my six. He's going to stand yeah. right here and he's going to lock down this locker room with leadership. You know, it's the way all, all of them goes. And Shellis with Daniel was no different. And after he lost Daniel, he lost everything and lost the team yeah. and lost soccer. Now, strangely, in the midst of all this meltdown, uh, Shellis had his best open cup run he's ever had when they knock yeah. off the Fort Lauderdale yeah. strikers in round one, owners of the best kits in U.S. soccer. They knock Hands off down. Houston Donimo in two. 
Uh, and they finally they, they they lose to the Portland Timbers, but this is the best run by far of any of Shelsa's Open Cup runs because we talked about how most of the time it seemed like he didn't care about the Open Cup until he was having a horrible season, and then he cared about it a little bit. Right, right. I mean, you know, hey, you'll see major league soccer teams kind of pick their poison. Go, hey, is this a year we can make a run, or is this a team where we don't? I mean, what was it? Houston a few years ago was having an awful MLS season, but they ended up winning MLS Cup. DC United did the same thing. The Open Cup, yeah. You know, so those things happen. Um, yeah, if you're well out of it, you put your poison in the cup, I guess, and, and pour it all in right. there. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, and I mean, the other thing that's frustrating is, and I remember this for a couple of different reasons, the injury to Lucene really was a huge blow. Killed the season. Because, I mean, he easily could have been not just a replacement for Daniel, but a better version of him yeah. in terms of not even being able to get stuck in, not only the leadership, um, but just kind of the, the people that he knows and the respect he is given even today where he's coaching in the different places where he's coaching. Yeah. Um, if you take a look at where he's been and the people he's built connections with, man, he could have been something really special for FC Dallas. And it, it really killed both Shellis's time and, yeah. you know, a lot of different things for the team. Yeah. It was, that was yeah. a big, that's the lesson of 2013 when you look back on it as a Hefty Dallas fan is the value of the six and the importance of the six. Now, yeah. that brings me, Kevin, to the most insane moment of 2013, and that comes in October. Uh, you get the joy of another insane moment, Kevin. These are fun. And that's the <laughs> that's the on-field fight between David Ferreira and Jackson at halftime yeah. of the Seattle Sounders game yeah. on October 19th. Now I'm pretty sure this is a big part of why they did not pick up David's contract and why Jackson was traded over the winter. Because when you get in a fight with your teammate on the field in front of people, now fights happen in training and sure. fights happen in the locker room. They happen. Sure. These guys are insanely competitive, but to yeah. have it walking off at halftime, that's no yeah. good for anybody. And it's not yeah. a surprise. Those guys are on their way out afterwards. Yeah, and I mean, that's kind of what I meant in terms of, um, you know, David had kind of lost his edge, and I think that was a, a kind of a sign of that because up until that point in time, he had been a consummate professional. He was as competitive as Blas without doing some of the things that other people would consider to be dirty that Blas did. Um, I mean, one of the most straight-laced players in terms of I'm going to try to play honest, I'm going to try to play skillful, I'm going to play through the pain, I'm going to do everything I can for the team. And yeah, I think this was a moment where he was sort of like, you know what, I, I, I've done everything I can. I'm not getting anything out of this. I'm getting frustrated and, and I'm done. Right. Well, after this season, the FC Dallas misses the playoffs uh, for the second year in a Again. row. And I believe it's only the fifth time. Uh, no, sixth time in club history that ever missed the playoffs. Um, now, not surprisingly, perhaps Shellis has had a five year run. So he resigns. Uh, this really is one of the poorest seasons in club history other than obviously 2003, but, um, and coach Hyman left on a sour note, but let's put a bow on Hyman's time in Dallas. Sum up for me, if you can distinctly, what, what did you think of Shellis as a coach? So when we hired Shellis, I remember there were a lot of people saying, Oh, he's just a college coach. And I remember thinking, yeah, but look at the college coaches that have had success in MLS and look at some of the challenges FC Dallas has had in MLS in terms of being competitive. You know, uh, Dallas, Dallas Burn, FC Dallas, up until that point, had very much tried to be the uh, skillful team, right? And we basically enjoyed doing that, and that was good, and it had some fun moments for the fans, 
But in terms of winning championships, it was the Bruce Arena team. It was the Peter Novak team. It was the, the hard guys that ended up winning championships. And here was a guy who arguably could have been the toughest coach MLS has ever seen. I mean, just it's definitely tough. Yeah. And all that other stuff. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, videos of punters and blah, blah, blah. Right. <laughs> Kicks um, in the balls. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, you know, he, he had the opportunity to bring something really special to Dallas in terms of a competitiveness using the athleticism that defined Major League Soccer for much of its career up until the, the 2010s, frankly, yeah. uh, maybe 2015s, whatever, when now you have kind of a bigger universe of teams, et cetera. Um, so I saw it as an opportunity. Frankly, I was a little frustrated. He didn't move to get players like Ugo and Danielle on board sooner. Yeah. Um, well, he tried to get Ugo for several years and ended up finally having to pay Drew Moore to get him. So yeah, it which, took a lot to get him because everybody liked Ugo, you know, in Colorado. Right. Oh, yeah. No, he's, I mean, you know, he's, he, very undervalued player, underrecognized for what he did because of his position. Uh, same thing for Danielle. I mean, the, the, the leadership he brought to the team, even at his age, the fact that he was able to be as imposing at that stage in his career really spoke highly. Um, yeah, he had a monumental career before he even came here. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, and I remember, I know this is before kind of the window we're looking at, but I remember the game in 2009, I want to say it was against Salt Lake where Benitez and was it Fabian? I can't, it was, I know it was Benitez and it was another player. It wasn't no, Castillo. He didn't even come until much. No, later. you're right. Yeah. It wasn't Castillo, but it was another player that was like pure speed and athleticism. Um, and he sprung them in the same game and they tore Salt Lake a new one. Um, and I remember going, Ooh, maybe he's figured it out. <laughs> Well, the, um, other, the other key player we lose at the end of 2013, Kev, is David Ferreira, uh, yes. one of the best players in club history, Mount Rushmore for me of this franchise. Yeah. And that even is with a whole missed season with a broken ankle. Uh, it's a shame the club never won something in his time. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the team is littered with players who deserved better, whether it's Dave Vandenberg or, you know, I mean, I, technically Jason Christ won a championship, won a league MVP, but um, that's a player who deserved to win an MLS cup. Um, you know, and, and David's definitely in that group. He deserved hands down that league MVP. Um, and the fact that the next three years weren't more of the same is really frustrating and disappointing both for him and for the team. Yeah. So all right. That brings us to 2014 and the hunts throw a bag of money at Colorado and some picks. If I remember correctly, to pry uh, FC Dallas legend Oscar Perea out of their hands. Um, and strangely, despite the fact that I would have said, uh, you know, a whole season before it was time for a rebuild, Perea doesn't really gut the team right away. I, I think he probably came in um, with the idea of, I'm going to see what I got first, because th they do get rid of some uh, players, but they, they draft Tesho Akindeli, which Oscar traded up to do because he had seen him play. Mm -hmm in college and, and locally there in Colorado and knew him, but Cooper's yep. gone and Hasley is gone and they bring in David Teixeira and Andres Escobar. Um, Chris Seitz, who was already on the team, uh, 
and Emeril Fernandez is here. They 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 sort of split time in 2014. So I mean about Oscar trying to feel things out and figure out what he has at least initially. The midfield is kind of still in flux as Lucene is recovering. Stephen Keel is in town and playing a little bit. They bring in Henry Thomas. Mauro Diaz starts to become a bigger factor, and we're still trying to figure out who he is and what he has. Kellen right. Acosta really is emerging. And really, amongst all that flux, strangely or not, it's a homegrown player that was cut mm-hmm. and brought back that's probably the most calming and consistent flavor that year, and that's Victor Uola. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think the advantage that Oscar had that made it worth every penny the Hunts paid for him is not only did he know MLS and have the success of getting Colorado back in the playoffs, which was significant, um, but also he knew all the young players. So he knew Victor, he knew Kellen, that kind of stuff to where he could say, you know what, Hosley, Kenny, we love you, but no. Um, you know, he was able to let go of some players and fill the gaps with other young players that he knew well enough. Um, and Victor absolutely defines that knowing of the young talent and knowing where he could help things out. And frankly, the beginning of one of the best eras in FC Dallas history. Now, the big blow on the defensive end is the loss of George John. Now, he's on the books in 2014, but he pretty much doesn't play at all or even train very much. Mostly it's because of his knee and he never gets on the field again for this franchise or for any franchise for that matter. But, right. um, you know, looking back, he definitely is. And he was in our top five defender center backs. He, he's one of the best defenders in club history, leadership, uh, quality guy, locker room guy, on field leader, off field leader. Really losing him, I think, was a, uh, despite the fact that the club has moved on. Certainly, I still think that he was a player that lost his career, but way before he should have. Absolutely. And I, I, you know, he wasn't necessarily a Daniel Hernandez type leader, but he definitely was a big presence um, to the team and to the fans in such a way that, that losing him and not just losing him, losing him in the way that we did, not just that he couldn't play, but that it was weird. It didn't really make sense. There wasn't closure. Yeah. It was just this ugly glob of, discontent and frustration and miscommunication and um, is he ever going to play? What's going on? How many doctors have looked at him? What does it mean? Is he trying to get a passport to play in Greece? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there were just all these different weird pieces to it that were really awkward and frustrating and a player that deserved to go out beloved um, by everybody didn't. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, frankly, the fact that that didn't derail the season speaks very highly of Oscar and a lot of the other players. Um, now, statistically, Kevin, I think you yeah. could, I mentioned this when I talked about the beginning of the season is that Oscar, I think, was searching for what he had to try and find players that he could rely on. And I, I statistically, I can show this by saying I went and counted. There were 23 players that played in 10 plus games that season, but yeah. only two of them played over 30 played the whole season. And that was Javon Watson and Matt Hedges. So basically Oscar is shuffling through his entire roster, trying to figure out who can I count on and who I can't count on. And it really, in terms of lineup was a season of complete chaos. 
Right. Yeah, it was. Well, I don't know if I'd call it chaos. It's well, lineup to, terms. It was chaos. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Um, but at the same time, to your point, Oscar had a system. He was working through his players and he'd give them enough of a run to see, hey, you know, can you play? Can you do what I'm asking you to do? And is it enough? Answer yes, you stay. Answer no, okay, we're going to try someone else. Um, answer, we're not sure. Okay, we're going to try someone else and then we may come back to you. Um, you know, so absolutely. I mean, and just the fact that he was trying to deal with the enigma that was Michelle. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, again, I, I think he's one of the most awkward um, players the team has ever had in terms of not that he was awkward as a player, but just in terms of his personality, his playing style, where did he fit on the team? How can we find a way to take advantage of his talents, minimize his negatives and, and make him a positive? I just, he was always. Well, he's a big part of the offensive explosion. This Kevin is actually the most yes. offensive exploded season in club history, tied for the most with 55 goals, right? Blas yep. Perez has 11. Castillo yep. has 10. Michelle, yep. who we've been talking about, has eight. He's supposed to be yep. a left back, right? And he's not. Right? He's playing the midfield. He has eight goals. <laughs> right. Tesho right. has seven and wins. Uh, we'll come back to him in a second. So yep. FCD ends up with 55 goals for the year, tied for the mo- What a crazy, fun season this is, even in the mix of Oscar trying to figure out what the heck's going on with all these players and who can I count on. Absolutely. Well, the advantage he had is that he had he had figured out how to kind of defend his goal enough and basically say, hey, opposing defenses, we're going to run Fabian Castillo at you, and you need to be scared of him. And by the way, if you focus too much attention on him, Tesho Akindeli is going to score. You have no idea who he is or what he does because there's no tape on him. And oh, by the way, yeah, this Panamanian guy, he's kind of good. And then, yeah, Michelle (laughs) put it in from wherever, whenever he wants, especially on free kicks. So good luck. Um, yeah, it was, it was a pretty amazing season in some ways. Um, and, and frankly, I think Oscar did a phenomenal job of kind of setting the stage for what would be his team going forward. Well, speaking of Tesho, one of the signature wins of the year is the 5-0 win in San Jose when Tesho has his hat trick. Pretty much, to be fair, this game wins Tesho Rookie of the Year. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, with with whatever it was a month or two left. Uh, One of the, honestly, war aside, legitimately one of the best rookie seasons we've seen in club history. Oh, easily, easily. Um, You know, and frankly, with as dangerous as Castillo was, um, and as unique a talent as Tesho brought to the table, because, I mean, no, he's not as awkward as Michelle, but he definitely wasn't a target forward. He wasn't really a right winger. He wasn't really an awe striker, but he could be effective mm-hmm. in three of those roles yeah. depending on the game. I still don't know what he and, is. <laughs> right? And, you know, the brilliance I think Oscar brought to the table was sort of like, okay, I'm going to look at what the other team's strength is, and I'm going to put Fabian in a place where they have to deal with him, and then I'm going to put whether it's Tesho or, or Bloss or Michelle or whoever around that so that whatever, you know, um, vulnerability they leave me, they're going to gash him. And I think that San Jose game was a great example of that because they had no idea how to deal with Tesho in that game. There's just no clue. And he just ran wild. It was beautiful to see. 
Well, there's also a really good cup run in 2014 as Dallas beats the San Antonio Scorpions. Houston Dynamo, again, they love to beat the Dynamo in the, in the cup. Absolutely. Um, they knock off Colorado, excuse me, Colin Clark's Carolina Railhawks. That's actually harder to say than you would think before they right. finally lose to the Philadelphia Union in the semis when Blas Perez and Victor Yulo, uh, of all people, miss penalties, unfortunately. Yeah. Good cup yeah. run, though. Yeah. I, it was always nice to see Colin Clark's teams doing well. I, I still think firing him was one of the big mistakes this club's ever made, but um, I, I don't disagree. Yeah. Solid cup run, solid cup run. So the team under Oscar with this offensive explosion, they start the year five, one and one amazingly, including a four, one stomping of dynamo. Always a great day. Yeah. Uh, then they hit a rough patch uh, through May mid part of the season or mid to early part of the season. But around the midseason mark, they start to get things figured out as Oscar has now sifted through all his players and sort of gets a little more consistency going. And from June on, they go 11-5-3 and three and end up in fourth place. And I think we're all feeling really good about the signs here about which direction this team is, is heading, do you not? Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, remembering where Oscar came from having success in Colorado, which when he got to Colorado, if I remember correctly, it was a dog's breakfast. It was not pretty. So the fact that he got them into the playoffs, both in terms of where the team was and the resources he wasn't given. Yeah. Okay. Him coming to Dallas, people were like, ooh, the Hunts have already invested in Shellis. Now they're investing in Oscar. After Oscar built the Development Academy, um, and I mean, obviously, it's not just because of him, but um, you know, there was one signature moment of Oscar Pereja as a coach that I remember. Um, I was working late, I was leaving, and I was watching him teach Brian Leva how to receive a ball with somebody on your back. Mm. Simple thing. But just watching the way he taught a young player and realizing all the different things he knew about all these different players that were now professionals for him. Again, back to your point earlier about Victor being a great example of the season is – Here's someone who has the ability to coach, has the ability to inspire, is one of those play coaches that you love playing for. Um, yeah, everything was on up and up. We knew coming into the season that there were some pieces missing, but we knew he was going to get more out of the team than anybody else we had seen in a while. Um, I mean, love Shellis. He was successful, but he never was one to – he wasn't the Bear Bryant. He can take his – Wasn't a teacher. Take yeah, and he can't take yours and beat his, right? He wasn't right. the guy who's going to outcoach the other team. Um, he very much was a teacher in some ways, but in terms of the coaching tactical thing, the Bruce Arena, if you will, um, that wasn't his thing, but it definitely was Oscars. And by the time we got to the end of that season, we knew we were going in the right direction. I don't think we all saw you know, the double in 2016 coming, but I don't think any of us were surprised that that's what happened. So Dallas is back in the playoffs at the end of 2014 for the first time in two years. Oscars had some immediate success. Things are looking bright with the finish of the back of the season. They draw Vancouver in the first round. It's, this is a one-game knockout, if you remember, Kev. Uh, yep. Akindeli and Michelle, our friend Michelle that we don't know what to do with, uh, scores, <laughs> go, scores the goals to win the game. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember Vancouver being mad that, oh, my gosh, it's just a one-off or whatever. It's like, we'll play better, be in a better position. Um, I like the one off. I like the one off too. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if the NFL structure of one off alone is the only way to go. I don't know. I'm, there's a back and forth to it. 
for me. But in that particular situation where you've got a four V five, I think yeah. it totally makes sense. It's yeah. like, who's your dog? Go for it. And I think a lot of FC Dallas fans wanted him to make the playoffs. He did. And was hoping that we would see him have success. We did. So that when we got into that next round, frustrating though that was, it was still, hey, we are we're going in the right direction. Yeah. We got the right guy. And this is a, this is the right thing. Well, speaking of the next round, the next round is the nemesis of the next decade of <laughs> FC Dallas, the yeah. Seattle Sounders. If Colorado was the nemesis of the previous decade, Seattle uh-huh. is it now. And that's who they get. The first game is at home and it's a one, one draw again, Michelle scores a goal for Dallas and Alonzo yeah. gets the goal for Seattle. Second yeah. leg is back in Seattle, but unfortunately it finishes in a zero, zero draw. And this is yeah. insane to me, Kevin Seattle yeah. advances on the away rule with yeah. a tie at home. Yeah. And Dallas is eliminated. What a no chance to yeah. go to overtime, no chance for PKs. Nothing. What right. a bummer of a way to end your season. Yeah. Yeah. There is uh there's a lot of ways to decide a match. Um, I think it, the recent thing about the opening game against uh, San Jose in 96, where there was a discussion that, Hey, you know, that kind of a shootout in this particular situation is better than just random penalty kicks. Um, so this is kind of the exact opposite, which is, yeah, all Seattle has to do is make sure you don't score and then they advance. And that's really not exciting soccer. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> Overall, and though, 2014, awful. Kevin, super positive season. I think everyone feels yep. great about Shellis. Not Shellis. I'm sorry. Feels great about Oscar Pereja. And yeah. things are moving in the right direction. We feel good about Mauro Diaz when he can be on the field. Things are looking really positive. It um, looks like they're ahead of schedule in terms of rebuild. So this is the end of your run with us on the History Podcast. So wrap up where we are at the end of 2014 with Oscar. How do we feel about the team? How do we feel about Oscar as the team goes forward from there? If it's okay, I'm going to come back to that because I'm going to disagree slight with your statement that we're excited about Morrow. No. I don't think even after 2014, we know he can be as great as he will be. We've seen glimpses. We've seen moments. But that thing that he becomes, the midfield maestro, the, the, all that stuff, um, there's still another layer coming. And, um, well, I agree that he gets better, but I think we all feel pretty good about him. Don't we by 2014? I mean, again, as I said, it's when he's on the field. So he makes nine starts and plays 17 games and has three goals and three assists. So the signs are there that if you can, that he could potentially be, if he can stay healthy now, he could potentially be the cornerstone moving forward. And I think that's where we were. At least, and maybe I'm thinking too much in hindsight, but I, I certainly felt like I think at the end of Oscar's first season that he had sort of figured out the core of what he had and what he needed to add into it, and specifically a six, which we True. see coming soon. Absolutely. And we feel really good about Oscar in terms of bringing along the youth and 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 knowing what he has and knowing what he needs. And that's what I mean by I don't think we knew that Diaz was going to be what he would become, but I think we knew that he was a piece that you could make as the revolve your offensive round and be the key piece if he could stay healthy. And that was always going to be the key with them. Yeah. And I guess that to me, at least as I recollect 2014, that was my big question. Frankly, it is because absolutely there were signs that he could be phenomenal, but his inability to play consistently Right. It, it, it's like he had all of David's skill, but none of his durability. Yes. 
And so at least as 2014 ended, I was excited that, that Oscar had done everything that he had. And all of the other things that you said are absolutely true because you now have a confidence that you've got a coach who can win the coaching battle. You've got players who want to play for him. You've got his knowledge of how those players got to where they are in their careers. Um, there's still a little bit of an issue with red cards uh, <laughs> yeah. that plays into next season, right? Yeah. Um, but for the most part, things are going in the right direction. The only other thing, and this is probably the one thing that will frustrate me to no end because of the way things play out. We can't really go too much into that detail. But I remember thinking, you've got Fabian on the left, you've got Morrow and Michelle. If you can get someone who can be on the right that is anywhere near Fabian's ability, so now you're putting pressure on both sides, and you get a real forward, right? Now you have the perfect scenario where it's sort of like, hey, defense, who are you going to try to shut down? You don't you, you you can't make a choice because they're better than what's coming at you or they're, they're better than what you've got. Um, so that's what I was looking for as I looked into 2015, um, knowing that there was a lot of skill on the table. I was hoping to see something on the right. Um, unfortunately, we got that, but didn't keep Fabian. But that's a different yeah, story. That's for the next podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah. So sorry, I can't join you for that one. Yeah. Um, we're still looking for that target striker, which maybe we get him here with Ara here in a little bit. Mm. Really cool. Um, but I, I do remember feeling like everything was solid and going in the right direction. The one glaring question that I had, you know, the things that I wish were other places, but the one glaring question I had was, can Morrow play a full season? Yeah. Can be that guy that everybody revolves around for a full season? Um, we got some greatness over the next two seasons or yeah. so, but the, the answer really turns out to be yes, guy. sometimes, but then not sometimes. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right, Kevin, but, that wraps up our 2010 to 2014 run. Uh, I want to give you one last chance to give me a encompassing career coaching thought on Oscar Pereja, because you've been around for his whole run, of course, and we only yeah. got to barely touch on him here. So um, without going another 45 minutes, what's your wrap up on Oscar <laughs> Preha as a coach and what he has meant for this franchise? Wow. Um, so, I know so, don't make it an hour. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't, I can't do that, but I do need to take a little bit of time. Cause, um, you know, when I was a fan in the stands and, and doing the Inferno thing, um, he was the player that I, I cherished the most. Um, he, you know, on his last game, he signed the drum head that I was playing on and I took it off and never used it again. Um, and then one of my first jobs when I was working for the team was to take that game ball to him at his retirement plant party he was having with the Inferno. Um, it just so, I mean, yeah, he's he's been uh, a part of my fandom and my appreciation of this team from, you know, the moment he got here from his trade and that amazing game against New York um, in 1998. And so seeing him, to your point, seeing him be all that for the team as a player, then become a coach and help develop the Development Academy team, which, again, huge contribution. Both of those are huge contributions. And then to come back and be the coach that gets them to its greatest season ever, I mean, he. Uh, you know, when we do the, the list of, of coaches, 
he's going to be my top. Not just because he won 20, 20 spoiler, spoiler. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, and I mean, you know, I'm not the only voting, so it may he may not be, but it's you know, if this is me influencing the voters or trying to, anyways. Um, it's not just that he won the double in 2016. It's that he built a foundation that can be successful for this team in major league soccer for Lucci to just kind of step into. I mean, Lucci's doing his own thing. It's phenomenal. It's unique, but it is built on a foundation that Oscar took when, you know, Shellis had left him with, I mean, I used it earlier and frankly, I think it's true an Island of misfit toys, um, that he had to figure out, okay, there's some pieces in here, but, how do they fit together and how do I get this group of players to become a team? He definitely showed how to do that in the modern major league soccer. All right, Kevin, thanks for coming on this podcast, my man. It was terrific. I always enjoy your insight. Even if you and I don't always agree, that's okay. Having different opinions is fine. I'm so glad that you are here to contribute. I really appreciate it. You guys will know Kevin's work from our power rankings we've been doing for 20 years on this website and, and other contributions, including covering um, the lower divisions for us and indoor soccer for us. So um, I hope you all continue to read and enjoy Kevin's work. So Kevin, again, thank you, my friend, for coming on and helping us out. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. And frankly, it's that not always agreeing, but still having us as a part of a conversation that makes your site great. Well, thank you, sir. And if you guys enjoyed this podcast, be sure to uh, support us if you feel it's appropriate on patreon.com slash third degree. We can always use the help. This is an ad-free podcast. We hope to keep it that way. We hope you like what we do and hope you want to contribute. That's it for today's third degree burn uh, podcast. Our look back at 2010 to 2014. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back soon enough with another podcast and we'll get into the last five years, uh, 2015 up to the current day and with a guest yet to be determined to talk about that era of FC Dallas soccer. That'll come over the next two or three weeks, hopefully. We hope you'll be back for that. We hope you enjoyed this one uh, today and we hope to talk to you guys again soon. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 